Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. What do I have to do? Oh, nothing sordid, I assure you. Simply vomit on me ever so gently while I humiliate a pheasant. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Okay. Nervous? Yes. I don't like this. You only have 75 more to go. Okay? What's this one? It's it's a couple of wavy lines. Sorry. This isn't your lucky day. (laughs) I know. Uh, Um... I'm getting a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here anyway? All right, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Milgram experiments and the Stanford prison experiments in particular. But we should also say that this is, we're recording this podcast um, at night. Mm. Uh, on a Saturday which, night to show everybody a, what kinds of lives we lead. <laughs> yeah. No, so so first of all, we're, we're dorks. And also, I, I don't know about you, but I've had a few drinks. Uh, uh, I don't drink alcohol and admit it. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> and admit it, right? No, you just do that mix of what was it that you said? Uh, the cold yeah. medicine, <laughs> some sort of like thing that ends up being crystal meth. Oh yeah, Sudafed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's why you have to show your driver's license to buy like pseudoephedrine or whatever. Like, do you still have to? Because I don't think you, I, I, we had in to California, do it in Minnesota. You do. In California, you do. Yeah. Yeah. And Minnesota you do too That's because there was every fourth house Was just a meth lab It was a meth lab uh, yeah, That's my yeah. kind of town and, Well rural rural Minnesota Who needs yeah. fuck, fuck teeth You know It's like <laughs> it's, true. It's, it's at this point They're vestigial What with you know Modern dentistry <laughs> Have you ever done like Really good speed Or something like that no, Like actual meth Actual no, like meth no, de- no I can't say that I have and, and I think that at this point I've been admitted enough That I would admit that Um yeah, well, I so I I have. Uh, <laughs> why are you like, still what? fat? What? <laughs> why am I still fat? Just kidding, you're not fat. Um, no, you think I'm fat? Uh, <laughs> no, all I'm saying is I get it. Yeah, I get I get why people are at. It's not like this thing where. You know, it's uh, you know these people have to be crazy. I mean, there's, it's 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 good. I mean, fortunately, right. I only did it once or twice, and I can never I can never get addicted to any drug because everyone thinks automatically that I'm a narc. Like that's just everybody's first assumption, <laughs> yeah. uh, right? And then they say that to me. Have we? Ta- I hope we haven't talked about this. No, no, we haven't. I can where, guarantee where people you. People will have say, not I, I, "People say, I, I, are you a cop?" And I'll say, "No, I'm not a cop." And then they'll say, "You know, you have." have to tell me if uh, you're a cop. Yeah, That's I don't know where, where that urban <laughs> legend came from. Can you imagine if that were true? Like, <laughs> like, if you actually had to admit that you were a cop, like, how many under undercover operations would just be blown? And, and not only that, but the idea that this little 18, 19-year-old is going to remind an actual <laughs> undercover cop. <laughs> It's like, oh yeah, shit! I forgot about that. Okay, <laughs> yes, okay, I, I am a oh, cop. Damn. Sorry, god <laughs> damn it! You know that. Well, I'm glad you reminded me. This has been a clear case of entrapment. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I guess entrapment is is sort of a theme for the show today. Uh, in some ways, the situ- 
Wow, this is a good segue. The yeah. situation is like an entrapment for people in terms of doing really immoral things, things you wouldn't think that you were capable of. And that's right. what we're going to be talking about today. But let's first try to introduce a, a segment on listener email. How do you feel about that? Or listener feedback. And, we, and, and, and we're doing this in part because we want to thank the people who have sent us some emails, but also to encourage more emails, more Facebook posts uh, on the Facebook page website, and more iTunes reviews. It's not just because uh, and, we're whores for attention. It's because it actually helps us. <laughs> it actually helps us, right. And, you know, right I mean, now all the reviews whores. have been fairly glowing other than the ones that t- tend to trash me. Well, but, you know, if you, if you have something bad to say about us, say that too, you know? Yeah, they, they tend to say those Dave. things over email. So Yeah, know. no, that's true. <laughs> that's right. Somebody finally took a shot at you that's, over email. They, they did. They I forget did. what it was. And, uh, something just, like you interrupted <laughs> me or Dan Ariely or something like that. Sure. Like, you got, you got to be kidding me. Well, you know, I like to interrupt. But, but. <laughs> but that's the whole point of the show is we, is we interrupt each other. Like, what, what, what do they think this is? Like 60 minutes? <laughs> that's one of Nightline? It's, it's simply one of the things we're trained in. <laughs> interrupt. We don't have yeah. much training, but we're Both trained. Both of us just like to talk. Yeah. And, and it's a pain in the ass when the other person is talking because it means that we can't talk. <laughs> to give you an example, we record our, our own local feeds, and I just prefer to listen to mine alone. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you doing that, <laughs> having a few drinks and just listening to your local feed. All right. Well, first of all, let's all right. thank Anna Kulen for for being an awesome an awesome person, and uh, I, I would say our number one fan. <laughs> number one fan. Thank you, Anna. She took a, th- a picture, um, posted it on Facebook of of a, a unicorn reading reading Tamler's book. Uh, very bad wizard. A very bad wizard. Uh, picture of a stuffed unicorn uh, reading the book. It's a really nice picture. Check out our Facebook page. Let's like us on Facebook. I feel like a dirty whore for asking people to like us on Facebook. Such well, you joke. can like us and then say something mean. How about that? <laughs> yeah. We don't care like what you say. Just like us. It's, uh, or, or, or don't, I guess. I don't know. Like, it, does it help if... If, if people like us on Facebook because they have those stats about reach. Honestly, and- honestly, here here is the only reason I care is because if there is anybody who might get any pleasure out of listening to us ramble like this, um, their friend liking it will show. Yeah, their friend liking it will show up on the feed, and right. they will learn about us. That's the only reason I care. Right. So like us. So 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 like us and then do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so yeah, Ch- uh, Chip Ellsworth the uh, third. I assume not his real name. That would be really weird if it were. Um, be a uh, coincidence. Yeah, coinc- coincidence. If it were, uh, left us a, a very nice review on on iTunes. Uh, but he ended it with quote. But I do have one complaint. At one point, Professor Summers, very nice of you to refer to him as Professor, argues that The Big Lebowski is in fact a better film than Pulp Fiction, and rightly so. That's my beef. Whatever we we won't get into why Pulp Fiction. You really have a huge beef with no, Big no, no, Lebowski being a... better than Pulp, <sighs> Pulp Fiction. Uh, it's like one of the know. greatest comedies of all time, and I'm Big... not. You know, it's, I don't think he has anything against Pulp Fiction. No, no, He's no, just... he doesn't, and I don't. It's I love the Big Lebowski. I just think that the Big Lebowski is interesting because it's so empty, and uh, but I won't. Wow. I don't know. I don't know. But but wow. look, I love the movie. I love the movie. It's interesting in its emptiness. Um. Let, let me just leave it that and let the email, email Tamler. Um, okay. Don't email me. I, I think that's appalling. That's worse than you not having seen the third man. Although you now have seen the third man, the right? Third man, yeah. Been on a big noir kick, yes. which I would like to take a little credit for. Uh, you you definitely deserve credit for this. Okay. Big Lebowski is in fact a better film than Pulp Fiction and rightly so, even if he cannot adduce empirical proof to that effect. But any serious discussion on the relative merits of modern cinema must include at least a brief, brief mention of Swingers from 1996 featuring Vince Vaughn when he was still skinny. Good point. John Favreau, Ron Livingston, and a pre-roller girl, Heather Graham. By any measure, this was a huge oversight and maybe even a moral violation. The only thing I want to say is there are two categories of film. Well, there are many categories, but there are two categories of good film that is relevant to this particular comment. One is a great film for its time. Like the kind of film that you really enjoyed watching. You probably enjoyed watching two or three times. Uh, Lots of funny moments. But when you watch it now... Eh, you know, I, I don't know that I would recommend it to somebody who I wouldn't say, oh, my God, I can't believe you've never seen you've never seen swingers. swingers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, look, I, I, I actually think it's a movie you can watch a few times, maybe not too many times, certainly not as often. The Big Lebowski you can watch 50 times, and it just gets better every time. Yeah, but, I agree. Uh, Big uh, and, and and Pulp Fiction, Fiction are... you need to take a break from, actually. Maybe if this is, if we go back to that debate. Pulp Fiction, if you need to take a break from, and then after a couple of years or two or three years, then it's fun again. Uh, but, you know, there's, it, 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 it grates on your nerves if you see it too often, just some of this things, and especially that Bruce Willis's girlfriend. Oh, she's, French, she uh, is, no, she is single-handedly, and I, I have a theory about why she's in the movie. Because you need something, you need something, shitty to understand what a good thing is and so so Quentin Tarantino he had he had to put that he had to put her in there well and also I mean that's just the stuff you just skip over yeah. when you're watching it again I on think, DVD yeah. but but let me say with this about swingers also is and I'd be interested from some of our younger listeners uh if that's a movie that they saw because it did kind of come out when both you and I were around the same age as a lot of the characters right. were and we could relate to it in, in, in that way. And it, you know, that I, I'd actually lived in LA around that time for a bit. And did you carry a gun from, when LA. You were from Pasadena? <laughs> that, that was a great, it's a very, it's a very funny. What's up, bitch? Uh, you have a gun? <laughs> Uh, and the whole NHL 93, like that, that whole stuff, like that just spoke to me and my time then in a way that I wonder if it does for, for say college students today. Right. I, I do think, although I, I don't hate this, um, uh, reviewer like you do, um, uh, I do think any disc, it's, it's a little bit of to say that any discussion of modern cinema <laughs> needs to mention swingers. It's a really good fun. I, I, I enjoyed it, but it's not a great, it's not even, it's not a great movie. It's not in the category. It's not in the same genre. You know, you know, it's not it's the not same level right. of pu- either Pulp Fiction or Big Lebowski, right. whatever you think about that. Never mind some of the other great movies of that era. And, all right, can we talk about, it's 15 minutes in and we have yet to mention right. anything of substance that we're supposed to talk about so thank you for everybody who's uh leaving us feedback and uh right. challenging us on our movie tastes and very and, and dave's constant irritating habit of interrupting mm-hmm. um yeah anything else anything else tamler <laughs> i'm ready i'm ready okay milgram experiments uh i i would have thought that you would be the one that would lead in and talk about this since I, you're the social psychologist but now you just told me before the thing that you'd barely even know what it is i barely i barely talk about it in class <clears throat> i mean milgram is the perfect video for an intro psych class there is no better more powerful description of of how situations can have a surprising influence on us than the Milgram experiments. If you didn't take intro psych at any university um, and did, have not gotten a chance to see this, just just YouTube some of this. Um, YouTube, we'll, and we're going to put a bunch of links, yeah, we'll uh, links for some of the modern replications, but you can also see some of the original videos. So, so the the original experiment was made was designed by Stanley Milgram, right? And so, so, so describe the experiment. Right. So in a nutshell, because I, I suspect many of our listeners will already be very familiar with this, but, but the gist is some uh, you bring someone into the lab and you tell them that they're going to participate in an experiment on learning, which was the do, you know this d- dominant experiments in uh, during this time were learning experiments, right? These were from rat and pigeon learning all the way to human learning. The question was, how does uh, reward, reinforcement, and punishment affect learning? That's the cover story. Seems really plausible. You uh, tell somebody that what you're interested in is the effect of punishment on learning. And this is, by the way, why we played that wonderful Ghostbusters clip at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> With Bill Murray. You got to see it. We, we definitely put, post the clip. For we we He's just shocking the guy for the hell of it. We could have actually, we could have actually played a Milgram clip, but, but no, no, we went with Ghostbusters. So the person thinks that what they're doing is training a person whom they cannot see to learn a list of words. And if they get it wrong, they're supposed to shock them and they're supposed to shock them at increasing dosages, right? At increasing levels. Uh, and anywhere from 15 volts to 450 volts. Right. And if you've never, if you've never actually been shocked or, or, or if you, d- you don't have a good idea of what this feels like, a 15 or 20 volt shock feels like, you know what it feels like actually? Cause we did some shock experiments. It feels like taking your, uh, 
it feels like flicking a finger onto your uh, onto your skin. So uh, you know, like a like a fairly rough flick of the finger onto the skin doesn't really hurt, but you feel it when you start getting into into fifty hundred volt range. It's it, you're starting to get into real pain. Um, and also, they're labeled, right? They're labeled. Um, there was a dial. The thing. Right. There was th- there's 30 levels of shocks. Uh, level 13 is at 195 volts, and it's labeled very strong shock. Level 25, 375 volts was was labeled danger, d- danger, <laughs> severe shock, and then level 30. 450 volts. This is just my favorite thing. It's just marked triple X. <laughs> <laughs> it that, that must have meant something like that, else. It's just in there. the imagination of the participant in the experiment, uh, you know, what that means. It's, you know, it's it's more than danger, severe shock. It's just triple X. And they probably not uh, anything to do with pornography. Because <laughs> at, at the time that Milgram was doing this, pornography was at a very rudimentary stage. Nothing like <laughs> the, gold, the golden age that we're in right I now. don't even know. <laughs> okay. So, obviously, well, I don't know if obviously there was no... Dave was just talking to his daughter right now. <laughs> well, I was, well, I was saying that. like I It couldn't be more inappropriate. All right. So, uh, uh, there was nobody on the other side. No one was getting shocked. But it was an elaborate ruse. There was a video tape, I mean, an uh, audio tape of the other supposed participant and the the question was really, how far will the individual go in their shocks, right? Um, in fact, they actually got a little sample shock at the beginning of the experiment, so they would know exactly how much it hurt. Um, and just at the very the lightest, the lightest they level, got, right? Yeah. And, and you should know if you've ever, as I have, if you've ever by mistake stuck your finger in, in an electric socket in the United States, that's 110 volts. Um, that hurts. <laughs> Um, so everyone actually just pause the podcast right now no, and do that. So you just get a sense. <laughs> but not if you're in one of those. You can two, get a sense if you're of in one of those uh, two twenty countries. Don't do it. <laughs> well, yeah, that that'll be up to you. <laughs> we take no responsibility for that. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. So um, that emailer who doesn't like interrupting is going to be yeah, pissed. Right right. So it really was. It, it really was. Uh, one of the things that Milgram did that was so nice was he asked people, how, how far do you think people will go? Do you think that people will actually, just because I tell them to, do you think that people will deliver um, the highest level of voltage? And by the resounding answer from both people who, people who weren't participants, like subjects who, who had not been in the, involved in, in, the, in the experiment quite yet, and experts like psychiatrists, everybody said, well, there's no way anybody's going to go that far like nobody would actually... all the way to level 30 because right. there's literally 30 times that you have to shock the guy to get to the top and and what we and... didn't mention is the audio tape gets increasingly distressing at one point the guy <laughs> yeah. is saying like please please i have a heart condition and and you know whenever you show this to an undergraduate and then class, they say they want to stop i want to stop and then they say and then they just stop and then talking, they just get right? silent, <laughs> they get really, silent. Really and then they just think maybe they're dead yeah 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 so the people who are taking part in this experiment are really, they're like sweating, they're nervous. They don't want to do this, right? But the experimenter keeps telling them. The experimenter keeps saying, no, we ha- we really need you to keep on. What is it, 76% of people? What's, what's the per- 65% went all the way up to... 300? To, 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 no, to 450, 450. Like well after the person had stopped responding yeah. at all. Um, that's the triple X level. and And the average... Shock was 360 volts, which is um, danger, severe shock. And what's interesting, I just read this actually in doing a little research, is that uh, the reason the mean was so low, well, not low, the reason the mean was at 360, but 65% of the people went to 450, is that once you passed a certain point that was very early, like around 120 shocks or something, uh, 120 volts or something like that, you were really likely to go all the way to the end. Right. But 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 there was a segment of people that just stopped really early, and it was that the th- the threshold of whether you were going to go to the end or not was 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 surprisingly low. It was uh, it was about 120, 125, and then it became really really likely if you passed that uh, right. that point <laughs> that you were going to go all the, the way. The fuck it point. 
<laughs> yeah, the fucking point exactly. It's like when you're like that point in the the, the pint of ice cream or whatever, where you're uh, like, oh fuck it, I'll just <laughs> exactly. But by the way, I'll just kill. Uh, I'll just kill the guy at this point. I've come this far. There's a there's a Peter Gabriel song about these experiments. If you don't know, um, really? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. He has a song called uh, "We Do What We're Told." Milgram's thirty seven. Um, I'll put a link to it in the uh, to the wiki on this um and it's it's about one of the experiments where 37 out of 40 people delivered these lethal shocks um by the way milgram pe- people don't know milgram did a ton of these experiments and he he uh, manipulated a whole bunch of variables um whether the experimenter was wearing a white lab coat or not he even manipulated how and that made a big difference it right? made a difference what made also made a difference was uh, the distance the physical distance that they were from so people were way less likely to do it if they had to do it right if, you know if if the person was actually right in front of them um they were way less likely to do it uh, and obviously if they were in another room they were more likely to do it if they were next door they were slightly less likely to do it you know so interesting uh the disturbing part of it is that it really it wasn't that it's not that psychopaths are necessary to do these things. It's that any person, at least, at least many people, whom, who would never expect that they themselves were capable of this, or we would never expect they were capable of, of this, are are delivering what they believe to be lethal shocks. And so the analogy to the or Holocaust could be, is yeah. obvious, right? Do you th- what do you think you would have done in that situation? I mean, I know this is the whole point, is you can't... At- it, you can't answer that question yeah. with any confidence. I'm pretty sure. But assuming that you didn't know the setup of the experiment, what do you? Th- what category do you think you would have been in in that? It's 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 hard to answer, but so but here's here's my answer. Given my level of of say intelligence and education, without being a psychologist and without being a social psychologist who who has to think about this all the time, I'm pretty sure I would have done it. Like I'm, you would have gone all the yeah, way. Yeah, pre- I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. I think that that it's that it's huh. that it's what I've chosen to think about in life that has made me. I'm sort of pre-committed to when if, if I think that I'm going to get into one of those situations, I'm now pre-committed to not right. doing it. But I, right, you know, right. I I'm pretty. I don't know. I'm pretty. Uh, I'm, I'm, You'll conform. Yeah. Well, conformity is a weird word in this case, but I, I think I. Uh, I don't want to upset authority. Like I, you know, it's not like I don't take glee in rebelling against authority of that sort. You know, I I, I like to please. Without painting myself out as some sort of James Dean like figure, I kind of. But again, everybody thinks this. You know, and obviously, sixty five percent of the people went all the way. So I have no confidence that this is true. But if, but if I had to guess in a possible world whether I would have done it or not, I would say no. But I also don't have as much of a inclination in even when it helps me to to obey authority or right what if they were german like the other person on the other side oh (laughs) then i would do it even (laughs) yeah well i mean yeah i mean eye for an eye right Uh, what if they were from one of those minorities that really aren't worth as much as you (laughs) (laughs) get that drop producer we really need a producer to get drops like that because you say you know like you're the nicer guy on the podcast but then every (laughs) once in a while you come out with something beyond the pale it's okay some of my best friends are minorities um (laughs) here's i think the big question hamler which is how distressing is this so it could be distressing. Uh, yeah, it could yeah, be distressing okay. for a number of reasons. But one one of the big reasons why uh, people find it to be distressing, and and this is what um, sort of the the Zimbardo take home message too, was you think that your behavior is a product of your beliefs and your principles and your attitudes, but all of that goes out the window given the right situation. And there's certainly some truth to this in that. I'm sure if we were all in sort of dire straits and we had – it was either kill or be killed, you know, we're capable of killing, right? Or, right, but that's not what this is that's about. Not this isn't this, kill or the be killed. This, this, is this is shock or just say, no, fuck no, I'm not going to shock this man to death just because you tell me to. And these, by the way, Milgram, these, he wasn't recruiting just undergraduates. He was recruiting sort of local New Havenites. So normal people, good, healthy, non-messed up people. Um, 
some high percentage of them are, are shocking people. They believe that they're... I mean, think about this. I mean, so, by the way, these experiments are considered completely unethical now. And, in fact, Milgram did not get tenure at Yale. Uh, in Did he not? I didn't know that. No, and really? Lord, he ended up going to Harvard because that's where... That's where losers who can't stick it out at Yale go. Um, and, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, Cesaro is now doing like a Harvard-Yale I'm going to talk like this from now on. <laughs> so, yeah, no, he didn't get tenure. And there's an interesting story uh, that I have about this that I didn't tell you, actually. And, and I don't there most people don't know. I was when I was a graduate student, we were in the basement of the Yale psychology department and there was a part that hadn't been renovated. Mazarin Banaji's lab space was right next to this old storage area. And one day I just went in there with a friend of mine and there was all, there were all these old file cabinets, like those old, you know, classic cast iron uh, filing cabinets that you can. And we start looking through the files. And what we find is old faculty files from professors. Now Yale has like a really deep tradition in psychology. So the, and so these are going back to the beginning of the Yale psychology department. And we're looking through these files and we find Stanley Milgram's file. I, I shit, you know, I swear this actually happened. We find yeah. Stanley Milgram's file. We open it up and in that his file was his tenure, his entire tenure file. And all of the letters from psychologists whom we would recognize now if we were in psych- if you're in psychology uh, and some we you wouldn't obviously, but tenure letters recommending him uh, a good, and they were just deeply split. Some of them were like, I cannot believe that this guy even has a job. What he's doing is completely unethical. And I kind of agree with those. I mean, he was convincing people that they were, you know, I was giving, I was giving. Has there, di- been, has there been some sort of report on what those people, you know, the people who were in it, who went all the way, the 65% of the people, how they felt about themselves afterwards? Like, what kind of debriefing can you do? We were giving da- uh, uh, yeah, Dan Ariely shit. Yeah, I was going to say, we Dan a hard time about, about like, people, <laughs> that, people like stealing a dollar and these people like left <laughs> thinking they killed somebody. People think they... Yeah. They killed somebody, no, they were, or they, they, they were, were all capable debriefed. of killing somebody. Yeah, they were all what? debriefed, and and they were very. Well, of course debriefed. they were debriefed, but like, how do you debrief that out of somebody? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about about the follow ups. They still do it, though. I mean, not in America, but in uh, England, uh, one of the replications we'll link to. You know, there was there was there's one, and you see they're tortured. These people, these poor people, you, your heart goes out to them because they're. It, it's 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 hurting them yeah. to do it, but they still do it. They still press the button. You know what's fun? It's not it's not funny actually. But when you show this to a classroom full of undergraduate psychology students, um, a lot of times they end up starting to laugh, and it's this weird, uncomfortable laugh because it's not yeah. funny. It's just really disturbing. But there's there's something about laughter that comes out in these in these situations of extreme discomfort that's just really it's a very nervous right kind of, yeah holy total shit nervous. kind of yeah exactly like what it's just yeah. yeah no I know like how am I supposed to react to this right, right. kind of laughter so okay so um, here's here's, so, here's so the strong, we gotta, let's get to the point the strong, about the, strong the, message. the impl- like what the takeaway message okay here's the here's the strong conclusion Nazi Germany can happen any give it, it could have just been me and you. It could have easily been me and you. There's actually not not only that, but what that leads us to conclude is that, um, you know, don't whatever whatever our feelings about uh, the harm that was caused by by, say, Nazi Germany. uh, One of the things that we really aren't allowed to feel is too much sort of blame for those individual people. Right. We can say that it was a tragedy, but but a tragedy in the same way that hurricanes are tragedies. Right. tsunami or something yeah, like that like, yeah. uh, that that um that there is there is no real evil blame in it and Zimbardo takes Zimbardo takes the strong the strong line right um he takes it mostly. Well, we could talk about that yeah, in yeah, the yeah. second segment. He takes it for everybody that's not at the top. Right. That's not because he blames the situation but then he also blames the people that are Framing the situation, so he might blame the Goerings and the Hitlers and the Himmlers of Nazi Germany as setting up this kind of situation where otherwise good people could do horrible things. Right. So, so I guess is Zimbardo saying that uh, that you know there there is responsibility 
is, is he saying there is more responsibility for those at the top, or, or just that their 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 problem it's, is something? I, I want to talk about that because okay. it's an interesting thing because it's not clear why he can say that. Right. Presumably, there's a situation even for the Hitlers and Goerings, and you know, he he said it in the context of Cheney and Bush. And Condoleezza Rice with the Abu Ghraib, right? Uh, right. During the Abu Ghraib uh, scandal, there was a huge the yeah. Abu, Abu Ghraib scandal. But but let's but let's talk about that in the second segment. So 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 go on. What you're saying that it, the the strong messages that could happen anywhere, and that it's not anybody's fault. There was this this novel, right? Uh, not a novel. It was a nonfiction book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. Right. Do you know about yeah, this? Yeah. Where, you know, he was essentially arguing the opposite point, that there's something about the German people that only to them could this kind of thing happen. And there's something comforting about that thought, that it's bad people and that that it's evil people, because the thought that anybody could do this is is really disturbing. I mean, this is why um, I think I've mentioned that, but it's on my mind. I just recently um, submitted the final version of of a chapter that I'm I'm writing with Roy Baumeister on, on... comic book villains and speaking of Germans, yeah, speaking of Germans, and um, there's something and it's really funny when you read especially these like Silver Age comics where where uh, like the the X-Men like their enemies are the brotherhood of evil mutants like the, the, like they would actually call themselves evil like and go around like yeah let's do evil <laughs> it's ridiculous and it would never happen because the people who are actually doing those things don't think that they're doing evil, but it's really... Well, that's the question, right? Do those people in the Milgram experiments think that they're behaving... You know, if, if you ask them right now, is this the right thing to do? Do they think they're behaving in a way that's morally acceptable? Right. Or do they think they that it's morally unacceptable, but they can't help it? You know, it's just right. I, yeah. I, it, it's it's very it's it's it would be interesting to get into. I always wonder another experiment, the Ash conformity experiments. Right. Um, right we'll right. link to these two. It's a very whether they actually believe famous it. Famous one. Whether they act, you know, that they, they show these lines. No, and, you know, and, in, and, the, in the experiment, in those cases, they actually say be, no, no. See, I knew it was wrong. Like they say that. Yeah, afterwards, and a lot of people right? in the Milgram experiments, they at the end, even though they went all the way, they're like, ah, yeah, see. They like are like I knew I knew it was wrong to be doing like thank God I thank God it wasn't real. Is that just post talk? Well, uh, you know, it's like like making that making yourself feel better. That in a dollar, you know, you know, it's like like at that point, if you know, that in a dollar gets you what? <laughs> like the, blow job the, the Holocaust. <laughs> like it really doesn't <laughs> matter what they. It really doesn't matter what they're saying afterwards. You know, like imagine like all well, the all the Nazis saying like, well, yeah, you know, I told I told my commander like. No, no, no. I know, I know. Yeah, uh, yeah. It doesn't matter in terms of if you're one of the concentration camp victims, but it's an interesting question yeah. whether the sort of the phenomenology of it is. I'm actually you're you're so transformed that you actually are your moral categories are upside down, and you think what's wrong is right, and you actually think I'm doing the right thing, right? right. Or whether it's like when you eat veal or something like that, and you're like, I know this is wrong, but I can't <laughs> right. help it. And That's I know a good you question. Because and I suspect you know, that, I suspect that both things are going on, and maybe the ones who are actually in the have the power to make the decisions think that they're doing it for the greater good, and then they justify it. Um, and then, you know, maybe the underlings are not. But I, I don't know if it was answered well. I, I And in fact, what I'm saying is pretty anecdotal from, from the reports of people after the experiments. So um, so I don't know whether or not people had convinced themselves that it was for the greater good or whether they just felt like they had a gun to their head. And I think that part of Milgram's point is just me being in a lab coat and telling them to keep doing it feels like you have a gun to your head and that you and you're willing to do all kinds of crazy things. And there's a bunch of other dynamics. The way that it's phrased, the experiment requires that you continue, means that it's not you that's doing right. it. Uh, it's the experiment that's doing it. Right. It's a way of distributing or, or, or deflecting the responsibility from what you're actually uh, – so that it's not you. that it's, it's, it's sort of like it has to happen. Right. And you're just happen to be the conduit of it. Right. It's like um, it, it's almost giving you excluding you from future moral responsibility. Um, that's right. Yeah. So okay. Uh, Combine. Let, let me just before we we 
uh, take a little break and talk more about sort of the sort of philosophical implications and whether this view is right or not. Let me just say that that this experiment combined with the Stanford Prison Experiment and then really just combined with a great deal of social psychology showing the power of the situation to override basic sort of individual differences like you know, showing that, that maybe personality variables that we think of as stable and, and of causing behavior really aren't that stable um, when you look at the influence of the situation. That is, you know, extroverts on a personality test can easily be made to be introverts depending on the situation and vice versa. And really, this is the deep tradition within social psychology to try to argue this point, that the situation engulfs, right, it overwhelms anything like character. And when you get into the moral domain, this has some really, really serious implications. The Milgram and Zimbardo stuff is just, they're just particularly good examples of this, but there's plenty of other evidence. Um, and this has led some philosophers uh, to conclude, hey, maybe this whole character, moral character and virtue and vice thing is just not, uh, is, is just not the right way to view human behavior. Maybe people just don't really deserve to be praised for their character. That's exactly the kind, uh, what we should talk about in the second segment. So let's take a break and we will, uh, and we will be right back. You put a uniform on and are given a role, I mean, uh, a job, saying your job is to keep these people in line, then you're not certainly not the same person as if you're in street clothes and in a different role. You really become that person. Once you put on that khaki uniform, you put on the glasses, you put on, you take the nightstick, and, you know, you, you act the part. That's your, that's your costume, and uh, you have to uh, act accordingly when you put it on. It harms me. Why? I mean harms. I mean in the present tense, it harms me. How did it harm you? How does it harm you? Just to think it, about it, it, it mean that people can be like that? It, yeah. It let me in on some knowledge that that I've never experienced firsthand. Uh -huh. I've read about it. I've read a lot about it. But I've never experienced it firsthand. I've never seen someone turn that way. And I know you're a nice guy. You know? You, you know understand? That, I do. I do know you're a nice guy. Why, I don't, I don't get that because I know what you can turn into. It surprised me that no one said anything to stop me. No one, no one said, Carmen, you can't say those things to me. Those things are, are, are sick. Nobody said that. They just accepted what I said. I said, you know, go tell that man to the face he's the scum of the earth. And they'd do it without question. They'd do push-ups without question. They'd sit in the hole. They'd, uh, they'd abuse each other. And here they're supposed to have a little, they're supposed to be together as, as a unit in, in jail, but here they're, they're abusing each other because I requested them to. And no one questioned my authority at all. All right, well, that's a clip from the, well, it's two months after the Stanford Prison Experiment, which was in, took place in 1971. It was an experiment when they, where they randomly divided um, college students, not from St not all from Stanford, um, but college students who are psychologically screened so that they were healthy individuals, psychologically healthy individuals, and they just flipped a coin and said, "Half of you are going to be prisoners, half of you are going to be guards," and then they they put them in a prison kind of environment, and they Zimbardo played the role of the prison superintendent, and he said. Uh, all right, well, now you've got to uh, keep control of these prisoners. And after, I think, like a day and a half, already one of the prisoners had had a nervous breakdown. By two two or three days, there was already horrible, uh, humiliating techniques used by the guards. These were just college kids. It's, I, it's funny because in that clip, it doesn't – it's like such – those two are such the perfect – like uh, sort of exemplars of a uh, sort of hippie and the authoritarian. Well, this is what he said about that. He said all the this, there's a lot of social movements. The hippies love ins, be ins. He says I don't know what that means. He said that I, I, mean, I should have challenged him on that. What the fuck is a be in? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Is that like Phil, the bottom? Phil, what's a be? Like the, <laughs> it's like the top versus the bottom. I think. <laughs> 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 the beat poets. What? What is a bee? And in fact, I, I I request the audience 
audience. I would like the audience to let me know what a B and it's B E <laughs> slash I N S. Uh, all of it was here, and he said, and he said he he thought the the real reason he he started the experiment was to see to what extent people would question authority, rebel against it. And he turned into a douchebag authority figure in the process. Himself, right. That's the most I, – I strongly urge people, first of all, to read my interview with him, but especially to read his book, The Lucifer Effect, where he gives – he, he lays bare his own role and his own guilt about conducting the experiment. I, I didn't even finish describing it, but by the third day, they were uh, – there was a prison riot. Uh, and there was all sorts of sexual humiliation uh, tactics that the guards were using against the prisoners. There was a hunger strike by the fourth day. By the sixth day, they called off the experiment because it was – well, it, it, they called off the experiment because they were all, there was a, a number of breakdowns, psychological breakdowns already. But also, Zimbardo said, because his his girlfriend at the time, who ended up being his wife, just said, was it, what the hell are you student, doing? Right? Yeah, she was a graduate student at Berkeley, yeah. and she said, what are you doing? You can't keep doing this. And sort of shocked him out of his own role as the prison superintendent, which he had gotten so wrapped <laughs> up in that he had forgotten he was a scientist. So first of all, on the on the third day, this is really funny too, Zimbardo as the prison superintendent, he actually called, he got obsessed with the idea that there was going to be a prison break-in, like some other people were going to try to break the prisoners out, some other students, and he called the police. <laughs> <laughs> calls the police. Police are like what? Like this is what you can't. You can We're not gonna do anything about it. And he's like, like he's a psycho. But then, uh, but then a visiting colleague, he says, uh, asked them, came in to observe. And he says, "What's the independent variable here?" And this is what he says from his book. He got really angry at the guy. He says, here I had an incipient riot on my hands. The security of my men and the stability of my prison were at stake, and I had to contend with this bleeding-heart, liberal, academic, effete professor whose only <laughs> concern was a ridiculous thing like an independent variable. You effete, liberal, academic. I have a break in my hands. What are you talking about, independent variable? And that was on the third day of the experiment. So not only had there been just a breakdown with the students and there's really interesting stuff also in the book about he brought in this parole office uh, (laughs) someone to play a parole officer who had been in prison himself uh, for 20 years and had gone before parole boards 18 times and been turned down and he became a total dick like the one person you would think would be so sensitive to so uh, so so the, the, the idea of this and we saw that a little bit from the clip is that you adopt the role that you are given and you become you take on that role you're not you anymore you know you're you know all i want the whole time you're telling this story all i want to do is there's a family guy episode where (laughs) stewie travels into the it doesn't matter what what's going on but (laughs) an apartment gets burned down and the two there's two firemen who are in the standing outside of the the ashes of the apartment and one of them says to the other and it turns out that the stress candles caused the fire. <laughs> and they both look at each other and they go, Irony! <laughs> that little irony is all I want to say about Zimbardo. Like, day, th- day three, he's becoming like a prison guard. So, that is so it the turns main out he's still pretty message, mad. Uh, from, from, yeah. from that. Uh, is that it might relate the- kind of loosely to a Family Guy episode. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I just downloaded Ted. But oh, I yeah. actually paid for good. it, which is something you wouldn't necessarily. You know, I'm just a conscientious uh, objector. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but I'm. Uh, did you see Ted? Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. loved Ted, and I did not pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, it's great. It's <laughs> All right. Uh, so 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 this is the again what you were talking about when we were uh, closing out the first segment, the very lengthy first segment, is that this question of whether. We have these kind of character traits, um, and and there's a major tradition in in moral philosophy called virtue ethics, which uh, the whole point of it is that 
excuse me, I just burped because of the beer, <laughs> that the whole point of it is you build these character traits, these virtues, uh, like courage and generosity and empathy, and so that you will behave in uh, virtuous ways across a, a wide range of, of, of situations. And this seems to fly in the face of that because here you had these normally, as, as, the guy, as the hip, one hippie says to the other hippie, I know you're a nice guy, but you were making me – this was the John Wayne guy with the scary cool hand Luke glasses, you know, right. mirror glasses, you know, who uh, – he's like, I know you're a nice guy, but, you know, you were putting a bag over my head, making me, you know, naked, like <laughs> starving me and like, you know, like the Abu Ghraib stuff, which is how Zimbardo got back into this thing. And it, right. and, 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 it's, and, and it just sort of flies in the face of this idea that we can count on our character and our, you know, moral education, I right. guess. That's right. So so, right, so so Aristotle, you know, I think has a wonderful a wonderful take on this, and like how you how you sort of develop these virtues in in your life, so that you you cultivate the right sorts of inclinations and emotions and habits, and and you become a good guy. And Zimbardo here, it's day three, day three, <laughs> day like day three, and they're poking. They're poking each other in the ass. Like, I was like, literally, Zimbardo doesn't talk about this stuff, but like the Abu Ghraib stuff where they're like making them do lewd sexual things to each other as prisoners. And that's what they were doing in the Stanford prison experiment. I know. It's, if and, you look at the pictures from both, they're eerily similar. Eerie, eerie. They, and it's not, you know, you could say about Abu Ghraib, oh, whatever, uh, authoritarian people joined the military to begin with. Or, these guys were randomly assigned to be prisoners and guards, you know, and they knew and that they, it was a coin flip, right? Uh, right. So, so it's scary, and and it does fly in the face of of virtue ethics and what Aristotle says, and and naive naive human psychological beliefs. Like, um, I think that there are good guys and bad guys, and and what the 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 takedown here of social psychology is there is no such there's no such thing as good guys and bad guys there are there are guys and gals put in good or bad situations now, so now now let me ask you that's the again that's sort of the extreme view that's the the extreme takeaway message from these experiments and it's something that i you know john doris the philosopher here's one Here's one little bit of sociology and philosophy that I can tell you. John Doris was somewhat revolutionary in using these experiments in social psychology to challenge. Right. Well, I, well, uh, let's let's put up a link to, to Doris's stuff because uh, – Absolutely. Yeah, he has a book, really good book called Lack of Character where he marshals out all this empirical evidence that challenges the idea that uh, we have these – Stable character traits that will apply across a, a wide range of of, of situations, um, and we'll put up we'll put up links to that. Now, let me before I give my view on this, what's your view on it? I, I, yeah. I do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me. Oh, so, so this famously in social psychology is not it. It, ha, it didn't center around necessarily the moral virtues and the whole character approach, but in the sixties. Um, psychologist named Walter Michel really challenged uh, his beef with, was with personality psychologists. So it wasn't really necessarily about character, but it was about traits. But in particular, it was about personality traits. And what Michel, Walter Michel argued was that, um, look, if you look at the data, any given situation captures the variance, right? In 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 the the uh, lingo of our of our field. What captures the variance is the the particular situation. Uh, it doesn't matter how you measure whether or not people uh, have extroversion or introversion, or whether they're open to experience, or they're neurotic, or or whatever. What really matters is where you drop these people. Like what what kind of situation you drop them into. So he had this famous critique of personality theory that has really dominated social psychology. And I and I'd say that before Doris and the in this whole situationist critique of, of virtue theory came around, this has been dogma in social psychology. Um weirdly even a stronger dogma than Michelle first argued, because what Michelle was arguing uh, was was essentially a version of of interactionism, right? Which was, look, we have traits and we have situations, and the way that we need to be best be able to predict human behavior as scientists is to look at 
at the interaction between our our propensities, our psychological proclivities, and the situations, and that's how we're going to understand them. Neither one nor the other is going to be is is going to do the job. But this became sort of a, a, a general belief that the situation always wins, and and as somebody who came into social psychology sort of late in graduate school, I didn't get indoctrinated in the same way um, as most of my colleagues in social psychology, and I actually I actually think that. The pendulum swung has swung way too far. I think that it's abs- it's an absurd. <laughs> if you want my real belief, I think it's it's absurd to uh, to make this extreme claim that uh, that character or personality traits or whatever it is that the claim that there are no stable uh, stable individual differences that will that will predict and cause whether or not you're going to be a good guy or a bad guy. That doesn't mean I don't think there's some situations that will over that won't overwhelm the majority of people, but in general, there are nice people and there are douchebags, and nice people sometimes act like douchebags, and douchebags sometimes act like nice people. But it's not it's not weird or wrong or irrational or contrary to the evidence to still say that we can cultivate good character traits, virtues. In, in ourselves, in our children. And, and I think that it's a crock to think, to think that the, the research shows anything else. Well, why do you think it's a crock? Then why were, why did right. all, where were all the guards in the Stanford prison experiment? Now, some were worse than others. It's true. But there was nobody who just said, wait a minute, you know, we have to start, uh, remember, I, these are actual, like, college students. They're just like us. What the, what the hell are we doing, uh, with uh, all Yeah, these- no. I, I think that the mill, so, I think that there are two things going on. One is that these situations were fairly powerful. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that, that what I'm not, I'm, what I'm clear, definitely not saying is that there isn't, there aren't situations that might overwhelm character traits. But two, there aren't – if you want to know whether or not character ha- or personality traits have any effect, you need more – you need better better measures on two ends. You need better measures of personality and you need be- better measures of the outcome in these studies. Like we're all pr- – were all the prison guards equally sadistic? Were some more sadistic than others? And and I think that there you might actually start to see variance. And in fact, one of the problems I think with personality, uh, with personality psychology, early on was that the measures were rough. I think that the the better measures that you get of individual differences, the more likely you are you are to predict. So if I were to ask you, it's almost it's almost as if some psychologists and even maybe some philosophers now are arguing that it's that it's. Uh, blatantly wrong or even incoherent to think that there is such a thing as a shy person versus a, uh, yeah, a, an extrovert. And that's not true. And, and it's weird because Zimbardo himself studies shyness. Right. Uh, and sure, certainly you can put me in a situation where I'm going to feel shy. Right. Like, and of course. Like, yeah. Like but that prison. But using those, like using that. Put you in prison. As, uh, right. Yeah. You know, right. but not the but prison you, where you're giving lectures, but the prison where you're <laughs> trying to decide whether, you know, like, should I be that guy's bitch or this right, guy? Right, right. I mean, do I really have to, like, find the biggest guy and kick his ass on the first day? But, <laughs> should I join the neo-Nazis just so that I can, you know, have some I mean, the sort big, of protection? Uh, believe me, I have thought many a time at in in California prisons they're racially divided into white, Mexican, and black. <laughs> and I've thought many a time of this, so which one I would belong to. Well, that, I'm a Hispanic guy who looks white and gets along more with black people. Well, that, well, Bill Burr, the comic, has a great line on that. He says, uh, you know, if I ever go to prison, it's like my number one goal, like beyond everything, is just not getting raped. And the only way that's going to happen to me, because he's like this redheaded white guy, is if I join some white supremacist group. So he just says he has a black friend and he says, look, no offense, you're a good friend of mine, but if we're ever in prison together, I'm going to call you an N-word. <laughs> See, I guarantee you that I would be more comfortable with the black gorilla family than with the Mexican mafia or the white supremacists. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure you'd be more comfortable. The question the is, question is like, whether I could convince them to like, let on me the, in. On, on, on your stomach with your head buried <laughs> in a pillow. Uh, I just want to know whether they would let me in. <laughs> I just want to know. 
<laughs> it's true, you have that kind of rap. But, uh, so, so uh, maybe we should setting, cut that out. Yeah, let, think, no, but I, well, the last thing I want to say about prison rape is I do think that's the one benefit to getting older is that every day I get older, I become less <laughs> desirable as someone who will be would be raped in prison because you get to a certain age, right? I'm sure when you're like 60 years old, they don't want to rape some 60 year old. I don't know. Uh, I don't. <laughs> It's it's honestly it's I, I swear it's a consolation to me about get, getting old. <laughs> I think that that maybe you also get less attractive to your wife, so it's kind of a catch twenty two. Uh, yeah, but I don't know how how attractive I ever was to her. So you know. no. So anyway, what were we so the talk- point was to get to this substantive part of the discussion, <laughs> and we're already like an hour in. Or uh, no, so. okay. So, 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 a couple of things about what you just said, which is that first of all, yeah, these these are pretty powerful situations that have to be manipulated a very specific way. It's like you say, if the, if if all of a sudden the guy doesn't have a white lab coat on, that makes a big difference. And so they had to do a lot of you know little subtle manipulations to get people to act in these horrible, horrific ways. And then, you know, the thing about the Stanford prison experiment is that there is this core of people that didn't, I'm sorry, not Stanford prison, but Milgram experiments. There are, there, there is this core of people that didn't shock the people that just walked out and said, I'm not doing it. And if you look at virtue and, you know, being a virtuous person, not as something that's common, but as something that's rare and as something that you have to work at, and that's right. something, then that's almost consistent with those results. Yeah, exactly, right? It, it's not like Aristotle's not arguing that, that you're born this way and that's it. Not at all. Right? In fact, the and, opposite. He thinks that, right. that you have to, from a very young age, train yourself, and that if you don't do that, then you're not going to be a virtuous person, that you have no shot. And in fact, he even thinks... You have no shot if you're not born into a special kind of situation, like a special kind of family with the, you know, and you, where you have the opportunities for a special kind of education. And if you, if, if that doesn't happen, you're fucked. So, so the idea that, you know, virtue ethics as a whole is bankrupt because a majority of people, even if it's true that a majority of people will act in terrible ways if put in a, in a certain situation right. that would still not threaten the idea that 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 there are such things as virtues. And in fact, can I read you there's this this one really interesting passage at the end of my interview with Zimbardo and I don't mean I I feel like I'm plugging your book incessantly throughout this episode. <laughs> Some something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh it's the section where he talks about the banality of heroism and how you train people to to be heroes and he thinks it needs to start at a at a very young age and he says this is what he says in the interview uh last chapter of my book is not only about how to resist the powers of the situation it's also a celebration of heroism as the real antidote to evil and that's the thing i'm doing now i'm starting the heroic imagination project to be consistent, I say most evil is done by ordinary people put in certain situations, and it's the act that's really evil. Most people are really not. Most heroes, most heroic acts are done by are also done by ordinary people who aren't special in any way. They just happen to be put in a certain situation, an emergency of evil or immortality or corruption that gives them the opportunity to, to act on it. But... Then he says, while most heroes are ordinary people put in a situation only once in their lifetime that gives them the opportunity to act, uh, what they want to do is, what he wants to do, he says, is I want to democratize heroism and demystify it. That the heroic act that's extraordinary because it's rare now, but if we have more and more kids think I'm a hero in waiting and we have hero resources in schools and summer camps where kids learn situational savvy, these kinds of street smarts where they can learn social influence skills to form a network, 
so you want to say to them, you want to train these kids at a young age and to say, I'm a hero in waiting. And then I have to be prepared. I have to learn first aid skills. I have to learn social influence skills. I have to learn a set of things. Uh, and that when the time comes, I will act. That's actually the last line of the interview. Like, that's just Aristotle right there. Right. That's You have to train these kids. You have to build habits. You have to drill. You drill virtue into, into people, and then they'll be virtuous. Then they'll be heroes. Then they'll be able to resist the power of all these situational I, forces. So, forces. So, is, so I agree, but is Mardo – so then is he being sort of just inconsistent, verging on incoherent with his views when you put them together? Um, because I mean, when you no. read like his 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 op ed about Abu Ghraib, like he's, but they hadn't had that kind of heroes in waiting training. I mean, I guess that's yeah. how you would rescue it. You know, that's his point, right? It's really hard, and that right. most people aren't. You know, those people that what's what was her name? Uh, Kristen, Lindy, Lindy, Christy, Lindy, something, Lindy something. Yeah. Lindsay Lohan. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> God, don't imagine what she would have done in that prison. Uh, but but the, but the, it, that part can be consistent, and it's consistent with the idea that heroism and virtue across a wide range of situations is rare, and you got to start early. You know, just like you got to start early. You know, you, you, I can't take up golf now. You know, I can't <laughs> right. take up uh, right, there's, right. There's no, something, I can't take up a true. foreign language. You know? Tr- like, you know, it's true. Ca- I mean, character probably is like any other human individual difference, right? Like, I cannot dunk a basketball no matter how hard I try. But, you know, I can make free throws. <laughs> like, you, like, can, you can work on that. <laughs> I can work yeah. on that. Right. right. No, yeah. exactly right. There's going to be a range of heroism that you're capable of. But, you, but you know, from a, this is what we do with children, right? We, we, yeah. we try to train them. We try to uh, – but let me ask you a question where I think he is maybe being inconsistent or incoherent. So yeah. he was an expert witness for one of the Abu Ghraib guards and essentially saying, look, I ran this experiment and this is what happens. And, uh, and then he says, well – so they're not morally responsible for what they did. It's it's the rotten barrel. It's not he's not that Rumsfeld had this thing about it's a bunch of bad apples and he says, No, it's not a bad apple, it's a rotten barrel. Right. Um, which is the metaphor for the situation. And then uh but he, he, he just tears into Condoleezza Rice and Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush <laughs> and 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 I ask him, Well, can't you kind of see them also as a victim no. of their situation? No. No, because no, they created the situation. I was uh, like, well, I know they created that situation. Right. But, you know, like what – who the hell knows what it's like now, to run a, a country after – this is a liberal paradox, right? I mean it's just yeah. like uh, – I mean this could be a whole other episode, Tamler. But but I think that, that, that it becomes obvious, right, that, that, that uh, everybody is a product of their environment – and uh, and few you know no no criminal is morally responsible except for Cheney. the, poli- the, the, the policy <laughs> except right, except I, for whatever I'm, politician you hate yeah and I'm de- I'm definitely not defending Cheney but I'm also <laughs> I'm also I'm, I'm also love just, Cheney I'm sort of willing to give the same amount of moral blames and environmental defense. Uh, to, to to most people, Cheney's a great example because he does seem sometimes like the embodiment of pure evil. <laughs> There's a Darth Vader kind of <laughs> kind of right. air to him, but at the same time, it's right. Like, look, if you're not if you're gonna not blame people because they're a product of their environment, their situation, and maybe the fact that. You know, Cheney didn't have any hero in waiting training when he was a kid either. You know, God knows what Cheney's childhood was like. Right. What, what do you, I don't know. <laughs> that would be a funny skit. Cheney <laughs> as a child. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, so um, we should wrap this you up. Know, right? Yeah, I wanted to make one last point about about okay. these experiments, which is that um, that there is there is a way in which it's it's valuable for social psychologists. In the, to create very very controlled environments, um, but one of the things, and usually you do this so that you can make some sort of causal claim. Um, you know, you can say, "Look, I just manipulated the lab code or the physical distance or whatever." 
one of but one of the things that um that is is missing from for instance the milgram experiment is the possibility that's that there is there would be another so, social influence in the other direction and this actually is way more likely to happen in real life where um if you're in a situation where something is really, you know, it's really going downhill and you have just one other person, we know this from the Ash experiments, we just have one other person in the room right. who's willing to disagree. Um, then all of a sudden you get a huge change. And right. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, and you can say that this is also the power of the situation, but what that means, you know, it, it really does mean something that uh, maybe those people who are ha- have some proclivities toward feeling extra guilt or sympathy or empathy toward the people who, who they're who they're victimizing would actually be way more likely to for that. It would be way more likely that, that character trait comes out if they have one other person, and and this makes sense, right? I mean. Um, they realize it opens the door for them to disagree in a way that they didn't realize. So, so it, as much as I am a huge fan of these studies and I am a social psychologist myself, and usually we've always had to argue in favor of the power of the situation. This is a, a case now where we're, ha- I, I think we're having to, to backtrack a little bit because I think that the, the, the strong conclusion just isn't the right one. And I think it does a disservice to, to what it means to have a moral character and be good and bad and, and you can choose to be a dictator. But but isn't that just another? So so you, you sort of blew it off, but you admitted that that's just another element of the situation to have one other person that can. But I guess your point is that triggers your better nature, which yeah. really is a better nature. I mean, it's sort of like this. To, to me, it's like this: uh, the debate between genes and environment. Um, you can you can frame it such that it's either one or the other, but sometimes you need the environment to trigger a genetic predisposition. And I view I view moral character as that. Um, in, in these strong situations, for sure, you can overwhelm someone's individual the, the individual differences. So I guess the empirical claim that I'd make is that you do enough studies like this, you would see individual differences emerge if you were if you had these like environmental enablers. Um, so that if you gave them a chance, right? Exactly, exactly. Because you yeah. can always do, you can always make it so that you minimize the the chance, right? And I think that's what Milgram was brilliant at doing. And I think, yeah, and, and I that's think what that, Zimbardo was brilliant. Yeah, at. and that point stands. It's not that I'm saying that those points don't stand. Like you can do that. You know, Nazi Germany might be just an example of the fucking efficiency of people, <laughs> the brutal efficiency yeah. of somebody to do that kind of thing. Um, and and but that doesn't but it doesn't mean that there aren't these there aren't good good right. people like, like, like in France you know there were some people that joined the resistance and some people who didn't right. Sartre joined the resistance uh, I mean did not join the resistance right well I don't know I don't he, he was a, <laughs> he was a fucker but Camus uh, did because he was awesome and that's a character difference between Camus and yeah. Sartre right. Uh, so, All right, well, that's a more optimistic way to end than we usually end. <laughs> Can I end with a joke? Sure. Uh, it said. That By the way, you should tell that Dan Ariely joke. It's not that bad. <laughs> no, I'm not going to so, so, tell another joke. So uh, it said that the British wore redcoats um, because when they were wounded on the battlefield, they didn't want the enemy to know that they were bleeding and therefore vulnerable. Yeah. And uh, do you know this joke already? And, yeah. and so uh, the French, when they heard of this tactic, uh, they decided that they were going to issue brown pants for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's, that's already one of my favorite jokes. Of all time. If, you, if you get nothing else from this podcast, <laughs> I joke. hope you waited this long. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, boy. All right, well, uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards for um, another illuminating discussion (laughs) where we take an hour and a half to talk about To make one simple point. (laughs) To make one simple point. (laughs) For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, And to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com.
just a very bad wizard.